And this is your Calls One Planet series. In 2022, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment identified Louisiana's Cancer Alley as one of several global sacrifice zones. Cancer Alley is among the most polluted and hazardous places on Earth, illustrating egregious human rights violations. Cancer Alley refers to an approximately 85-mile stretch of communities along the banks of the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, where communities exist side-by-side with 200 fossil fuel and petrochemical operations, reportedly the largest concentration of such plants in the Western Hemisphere. We have done many shows over the years about Cancer Alley. Well, There's a new report out by Human Rights Watch. It's called We're Dying Here, the Fight for Life in a Louisiana Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. It documents how residents of Cancer Alley suffer the effects of extreme pollution from the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries, facing elevated rates and risks of maternal, reproductive, and newborn health harms, cancer, and respiratory ailments. Parts of Cancer Alley have the highest risk of cancer from industrial air pollution in the United States. These harms are disproportionately borne by the area's black residents. Between September 2022 and January 2024, Human Rights Watch interviewed 70 people, including 37 Cancer Alley residents and current and former officials of the EPA, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, physicians, academics, lawyers, healthcare providers, advocates, and representatives of non-governmental organizations in the region. In this clip, you will hear from Robert Taylor, founder of Concerned Citizens of St. John, Tish Taylor in St. John's The Baptist Parish, and Sharon Levine in St. James Parish. Sharon Levine is founder of the faith-based environmental justice group Rise St. James. Cancer Alley, the stakeholders are 92% black. I think everybody agreed to that. Certainly we are the majority of the victims because we are victims here. If we don't come together and form an organization, form ourselves to protect ourselves, nobody's going to do it for us. We just see more and more battles and not enough support that we need. We get to tell this story over and over again, not knowing if it'll ever make a difference in our lives, in our future. I'm I'm, I'm really, really, with all my heart, hoping that we can stop any new industry from coming, unless it's green. That is a battle that we're gonna fight to the end power. But they need to regulate. I would like to see the end of fossil fuel, if that's going to make me live a longer life, breathe clean air, drink clean water. Yes, they could shut it down. Hey, hey, ho, ho, fossil fuels have got to go. Hey, hey, ho, ho, fossil fuels have got to go. Hey, hey. 
And that is the video that goes with the report by Human Rights Watch, We're Dying Here, the fight for life in a Louisiana fossil fuel sacrifice zone. You can watch the entire video at yourcallradio.org. The Human Rights Watch report says state and federal authorities have failed to properly regulate the industry, and they have not made information about risks to human health readily available. So what explains this? What does justice mean for these communities? And why should people in other parts of the country pay attention to what is happening to tens of thousands of people who live so close to these highly polluting industries? Today, we're joined by Antonia Juhas, an award-winning investigative journalist and senior researcher on fossil fuels at Human Rights Watch. Antonia Juhas is the author of several books, including her most recent, Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. Antonia is the lead author of Human Rights Watch's 98-page report, We're Dying Here, The Fight for Life in a Louisiana Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. Hi, Antonia. Thank you so much for the work that you and your team did on this report, and thank you for joining us again. Hi, Rose. It's so great to be with you. It's been too long. I wish I was there in studio with you, but um, it's wonderful to be a guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me um, and for featuring um, our new report. Well, thank you, because we've done several shows on Cancer Alley, and this is the most comprehensive study we have ever seen. So what compelled you all to do such an exhaustive report on the health and environmental impacts of the petrochemical industry on the residents who live in Cancer Alley? Because as you know, Rose, I have spent um, many, many years investigating um, the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry around the world um, and, and as well in Louisiana. Um, as you read, I, my most recent book is Black Tide on the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. I lived in Louisiana for a time while teaching at Tulane uh, University and came to work at Human Rights Watch in September 2022 and wanted to dive immediately into an investigative report to show um, to investigate where there, where there have been well-documented harms, human rights harms from the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry, but where those harms continue to happen despite, um, dis- despite knowledge that of the likelihood of those harms and the actuality of those harms. And there's really, you know, Cancer Alley is such an important place to investigate because You have both this high concentration of facilities. You have the facilities that have been there since the 60s. You have a a deeply harmed and impacted community that has itself been organized for decades to raise awareness to um, and uh, raise awareness to those harms and to seek alternatives and change to those harms. Yet those harms persist. So what we wanted to do as an international human rights organization, was do a traditional human rights investigation. There has been information of harm. We go in, we investigate that harm. Um, I conducted the interviews. I conducted all 70 interviews. I conducted 37 interviews with residents um, of Cancer Alley. We um, hear from people. We hear their stories. We check that on existing research into harms. And then we publish a report that reveals those, um, that investigation, but also makes very clear recommendations on what governments and businesses need to do 
to right those wrongs. And of course, those recommendations are deeply grounded in what I heard from the local community on what would best elevate the um, the recommendations that they are themselves making and what would have the greatest impact. And so uh, I spent a year working on the report, both doing the on-the-ground interviews. Uh, some interviews were also done um, at a distance and then conducting the research. We have uh, a tremendous data division and um, Brian Root of our data division also provided new data research, which I'll share. And then also we were extremely fortunate to work with three researchers at Tulane, um, Terrell, St. Julian, and Wallace, who were preparing new research for publication that is still pending at an academic uh, journal. It's been accepted. It's been through peer review, but it was released first um, in our report which shows for the the first time um, in an academic press and for the first time in decades, research showing the severe harms to maternal reproductive and newborn health. And I'll just share those real quickly because you mentioned them at the, at the top mm-hmm. um, that there, ha- there is this growing body of research looking at fossil fuel and petrochemical pollution and the impacts on maternal reproductive and newborn health harm. There isn't enough of it it isn't well enough known, and it's certainly not well enough known on the ground. And so Terrell, St. Julian, and Wallace um, performed, uh, prepared new research that looks at where the worst air pollution is in the state of Louisiana, and obviously controlling for all other factors, then looked at um, newborn health outcomes. And they found that where the worst pollution is, including in areas of Cancer Alley, there were rates of low birth weight that were three times the national average and rates of preterm birth that were two and a half times the national average. And then what we were able to provide sort of on top of that research that they did was identifying the contribution to air pollution of the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry and finding that the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry is across the state, hands down, the largest contributor um, to a human health risk and then hands down the largest contributor to pollution, to air pollution, um, and also uh, absolutely the largest contributor to air pollution, not only in the state, but in Cancer Alley. And Cancer Alley's pollution is the largest contributor to the of pollution to the state overall. Um, and this re, um, provides new evidence on the direct link between the pollution from the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry and um, extreme, an extreme toll on newborn health. And then that also we're told by researchers, you know, easily translates, you know, basically the the health of the, of the mother is the primary uh, indicator to the health of a newborn and that um, those newborn health harms uh, tell us of the risks to maternal health. And then that also translates into greater information than on the risks for miscarriage, um, the inability to get pregnant, uh, difficulty during pregnancy, uh, difficulty in carrying a pregnancy to term, and the relationship of, of fossil fuel and petrochemical pollution to those those har- uh, harmful outcomes. That seems to be one of the main points that you all wanted to make in this report, is that based on the science and the research, you can say that there is a direct link 
between these industries and in this case, low birth rates, but so many other health ailments, whether it's asthma or cancer. I mean, the list is very long. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, we're both working with what are people telling us? You know, what are the harms that they're experiencing? And sharing those stories of just, you know, families and communities devastated by cancers, by respiratory ailments, um, by maternal, reproductive, and newborn health harms. And then what is the research showing us? Uh, and the research shows that, for example, for decades across Cancer Alley, um, the uh, area has been at the highest risk of both cancer and respiratory ailments as a result of industrial air pollution of any area um, in the country in the top 5 to 10%, or in terms of cancer, has the census track with the highest risk of cancer from industrial air pollution uh, of any census track in the country. Um, that's where Robert Taylor lives, whose interview you shared in the beginning. And then what we wanted to add, as you said, was to what extent is that just air pollution, industrial air pollution? And to what extent is it the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry? And we were able to isolate out, um, Brian Root uh, conducted um, data analysis, which pulled out essentially identifying those fossil fuel and petrochemical plants and saying, what is their contribution to this risk? And finding that they are, again, hands down, the largest contributor to um, uh, the risk of adverse health harmful health outcomes um, for residents in the state. And that is incredibly important because as the question you posed at the beginning of the interview, um, you know, again, while, while our, our research for this report is isolated to Cancer Alley in Louisiana, this pollution, the pollution generated by the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry is the same pretty much, you know, around the world. And so the risks of harm, um, and particularly just as in Cancer Alley, where those the rates and risks of harm are disproportionately borne by the Black community, you know, throughout California, throughout the world, the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry tends to concentrate in marginalized communities, particularly BIPOC communities. And in Louisiana, what we were able to um, share was research that showed that the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality has been making permitting decisions and also at the local level, um, there have been permitting decisions that are being made that have resulted in the worst polluting companies being permitted to pollute the most and the most companies concentrating in Black communities. And that's one of the reasons why you get that disproportionate outcome that essentially the, the industry has been concentrated increasingly into black communities and low income communities. And that, you know, is, is, is a trend that started, you know, it, it has a long historical record in Louisiana where the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry primarily came in in the sixties. It essentially built itself on top of, and even took the name of in many cases, plantations, but not only former plantations, also built on top of and pushed out what were called free towns, towns that were founded by formerly enslaved people and their families and pushed those um, free towns out. And in interviews that, that I shared in the report and that are also in the video, including with um, Sharon Levine and, and her daughter, Shamel, will be joining us. Many residents talked about 
welcoming the industry at the beginning and saying, you know, we hope that it will bring jobs. We believe in promises that we're being told about what the benefits of the industry will be for us. And instead, most describe now what is a curse that has instead polluted the air and the water, has brought certainly benefits for some, but not for their communities, uh, not for the communities that live around them. And this is, you know, research also that we share that shows throughout Louisiana and throughout the nation, the communities, particularly back black and brown communities that live um, closest to fossil fuel and petrochemical operations and endure the most pollution, and this is um, particularly high for, for black and Hispanic communities, they are the least likely to get hired in those industries. So the mm-hmm. local community is bearing the brunt of the pollution, but is least likely to be hired in those jobs. So the, the jobs for pollution trade-off that many communities are told that they will get doesn't pan out. And then with those that I interviewed, even if people do get jobs, um, they are, you know, short term, they're working for contractors, not for the companies. Uh, they are, you know, maybe three months on, three months off, um, lowest pay, highest risk, least benefits, et cetera. Um, and so just the benefits are not coming, but the, the harms are there. And so that's why you get to so many communities that are saying now and have for some time, um, you know, we're done, we're full, um, and want to see tighter regulation first, um, want to see those companies put to work, making those company, making those operations adhere to the law, which right now many, many do not. And that was something else we were able to share in the report. Um, their own data shows time and time and time again that they're operating um, uh, not in adherence to the Clean Air Act, not in adherence to the Clean Water Act, not in adherence to the uh, Resource Recovery and Conservation Act, and instead are operating consistently outside of the law um, to spend their money bringing their operations uh, in line with the law, cleaning up existing operations, operating as safely as they can for their employees and local communities, and then um, implementing moratoria to stop new operations from coming in and then imp- implementing a just transition. And we provide pages of recommendations for the federal government and the state government um, to work with local communities to, to make that happen. We're speaking with Antonia Juhas, an award-winning investigative journalist and senior researcher on fossil fuels at Human Rights Watch. She is the lead author of the new report, We're Dying Here, The Fight for Life in the Louisiana Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. If you have any questions or comments about what Antonia and her team found, we're going to also join, be joined by two people who live in Cancer Alley, in about 10 minutes or so. So if you have any questions, comments, we'd love to hear from you. The toll-free number is 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Antonia, you visited the nine Cancer Alley parishes, and you observed fossil fuel and petrochemical plants located alongside or nearby playgrounds, schools, senior centers, homes, farms, and businesses. And you say in the report that these operations were observed regularly and routinely emitting large burning flares, releasing plumes of black and brown polluting smoke, 
displaying stains from crude oil spilled from massive storage tanks and releasing noxious smelling fumes. So can you paint us a picture? What does this all really look like and what does it smell like? Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, especially since we'll have the, uh, both, um, Caitlin and Shamel here, it would be great to put that question to them, of course, because they have to live next to the facilities every day. But, um, you know, essentially what you have is, uh, you know, as, as that description that I wrote shares, um, communities living alongside fossil fuel and petrochemical plants that consistently flare, um, that release smells of rotten eggs. It's a, it's a chemical smell. It's a smell that, you know, makes you want to cover your nose. It makes you cough. Um, I, you know, don't have to live there, but pretty much when, or any longer, but pretty much whenever I will come back, um, I will have rashes and rashes are from whatever chemicals are coming in, coming into my skin that I'm not accustomed to, uh, a sore throat, um, from the pollution, sore eyes from the pollution. Um, there are regular, um, what quote, quote unquote emergency emission events where um you know any resident of of the bay area is familiar with refineries that are regularly releasing you know extreme flares extreme amounts of pollution it just happens a lot more often i would say in louisiana the events that you're used to seeing in california um and what our research showed was that it goes unchecked by the regulators that there is very little enforcement um, when there is enforcement there, it takes a very long time um, for fines to be imposed. And when their fines are imposed, they're extremely low so that they don't act as a deterrent and don't have any sort of meaningful um, impact on, on the companies. Um, there are regular emergency events. Just um, a few months ago, there was a massive um, explosion at one of the facilities nearby where Robert Taylor lives, where there were just these massive plumes of smoke. Um, and, and, uh, there was, uh, an emergency making sure that, um, communities who live nearby, uh, closest by were evacuated, but there wasn't an announcement prior to the release of the emissions or even during the emissions. It was only after that those um, notices were made. And um, as I said, there's a concentration of this facility. So Cancer Alley has uh, residents who are white. It has residents who are black. Those are the largest populations, but the facilities are concentrated within those black communities. Um, And as I said, as are the most polluting facilities, and you'll see you know, a kid's playground and right behind it, a big, massive plant, senior centers um, right next to plants. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, essentially what what the area um, looks like. And what I was, again, able to document was that, you know, according to the industry's own self-reported data, those emissions are not in adherence with the Clean Air Act. Those emissions are not in adherence, uh, adherence with the Clean Water Act, that they are releasing more pollution than they should. And Louisiana is the most polluted state in the nation. It has the highest um, 
the residents are exposed to four per capita, four times the amount of industrial pollution of any other people across the country. Um, it has um, uh, the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry is the largest contributor to air pollution. It's the second largest contributor to water pollution and the state is inundated with pollution and you, it's not, it's a tragic outcome, but it's unfortunately not a surprising outcome when you see what those operations look like. In the report, you state that federal and state authorities have failed to properly regulate this industry and they have not made information about risks to human health readily available. So communities have been fighting for justice for decades and so many reports have come out. Yours seems to be the most extensive what explains this? Why have state and federal authorities failed to take action here? There's a you know, tremendous failure at the state level. And that really, you know, the interviews that we conducted with residents, with um, policymakers, with all kinds of folks, we were repeatedly told that the failures at the state agencies are simply too aligned with the industry and see their job as protecting industry, not protecting people and make permitting choices that allow the industry to operate um, with, you know, very, very little, uh, if, if any concern at all, or, or any um, appropriate uh, making sure that they are adhering to their own responsibilities, which are supposed to be to public health and the environment, but instead are protecting the industry. And the federal government has not utilized all the tools that it can to hold the state agencies accountable, but that varies essentially tremendously by who's in office and whether or not the federal government, particularly the EPA or the Department of Justice, are allies of the industry or allies of um, the communities varies tremendously by who is in office. And they're, you know, basically there are many, many tools that the federal government has, and sometimes it uses them, and sometimes sometimes it uses them to protect the communities, and sometimes it uses those tools to protect the industry. And it's very difficult for local communities to have to deal with the vagaries of who's in office, but it certainly makes a difference. And one of the, one of the recommendations that we make, so one recommendation is um, simply that there needs to be tighter enforcement, that there needs to be tighter enforcement by the state agencies and tighter enforcement by the federal government. Um, but that because the state agencies, so that's the first is tighter regulation, then supporting the local calls, calls for moratoria, no new fossil fuel or petrochemical plants coming in. If there aren't, if there isn't new plants and if those plants aren't expanding, then at least you can sort of have a lid and say, let's put a lid on what's coming in and what's expanding and let's try and pay attention um, to cleaning up what's operating here. And then of course the rollback, but because the state agencies have failed so profoundly, one of the recommendations that we make is that the environmental protection agency exercise its authority to initiate an investigation into whether the Louisiana department of environmental quality should even be able to have a clean air act program. That means that the state has essentially potentially failed so profoundly in enforcing the Clean Air Act that the federal government essentially would take that authority away from it and give significantly more authority to the EPA 
to be able to make permitting decisions about whether how much pollution an individual plant can pollution it can emit. Um, can a new plant come in? Can it be expanded? Those decisions, significantly more of those decisions would end up with the EPA. And that's, you know, really in response to your question, where's the failure here? It's a failure. Um, it's a failure of the state agencies. It's, and it's a failure of the, the federal government to use all of the tools that it has. And overall, it's a failure of a willingness to allow a sacrifice zone, to allow the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry to say that we're so dependent on it that we will allow zones like this to exist, places like this to exist. And instead to say, we will require that our policymakers make decisions that make it so that there is less fossil fuel and less petrochemicals being um, produced and used. Because even with these failures, the U.S. still has one of the most regulated fossil fuel and petrochemical industries in the world. Louisiana even has one of, has more regulations than many other places do. Despite that, you still have this tremendous, um, unconscionable pollution and incredible harms. And that means that you have an industry that we're not going to be able to regulate away the problems. And of course, we haven't even mentioned greenhouse gas emissions. The fossil fuel and petrochemical industry in Cancer Alley is the single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Obviously, fossil fuels are the primary contributor to the climate crisis. Louisiana is a place where they are experiencing a triple harm from uh, fossil fuels. So there's these immediate on the ground harms that we've mentioned. Then there's the worsening climate crisis that is battering um, Cancer Alley, that is battering the state. And then there is the pollution events that happen at the time of extreme weather. So hurricanes and floods and extreme heat. The industry releases even more pollution during these times. And if you're living next to these facilities, again, very similar to communities in the Bay Area, um, you're experiencing triple the harm. And so that, again, makes the argument for the necessity of um, not just reining in, but rolling back and phasing out the um, industry as a whole, which the Biden administration, like almost 200 governments committed to do, or to transition off of these, um, off of fossil fuels, at the most recent United Nations Conference of Parties, COP28. And we think that, you know, Cancer Alley is a great place to demonstrate um, that commitment to transition um, off of fossil fuels and petrochemicals. Antonia Juhas is an award-winning investigative journalist and senior researcher on fossil fuels at Human Rights Watch. She is the lead author of the new 98-page report, We're Dying Here, The Fight for Life in a Louisiana Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. We're going to take a quick break, and after a break, we'll be joined by two activists who live in Louisiana. This is Your Calls One Planet series. We'll be back after this. This is Your Calls One Planet series. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today we are talking about a new report by Human Rights Watch about Louisiana's Cancer Alley. It's called We're Dying Here, the fight for life in a Louisiana fossil fuel sacrifice zone. Today we're joined by Antonia Juhas, lead author of Human Rights Watch's report. You can find it along with a video 
with a number of interviews with people who live in Louisiana at yourcallradio.org. Shamel Levine and Caitlin Joshua are in that video. Shamel Levine is an activist with Rise St. James, a grassroots faith-based organization fighting for environmental justice. They work to oppose the expansion of petrochemical facilities in St. James Parish, Louisiana. Shamel has been active with her mom, Sharon, in fighting the fossil fuel industry's poisoning of the people in her community. Hi, Shamel. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Rose. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. We're also joined by Caitlin Joshua, the Louisiana Gulf Coast campaigner with Earthworks. Their mission is to protect communities and the environment from the adverse impacts of mineral and energy development while promoting sustainable solutions. Caitlin, like so many people in her community, has had asthma her entire life, which limits her daily activities. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to ask you both a question about all of the interviews that Antonia conducted and and what you're hearing from community members, because Antonia wrote that residents are just tired of telling and retelling personal accounts of death, disease, and community-wide suffering and failing to see action because reporters go to Cancer Alley as they should and reports like this come out and they're so important, but that process involves you all telling your story over and over again. So I just wonder, Shamel, what your thoughts are on that, what you hear from your mom and other community activists. Do you think maybe this time something might change because this is getting so much attention? Yeah, well, we're, we're, we're praying that the attention is going to garner some changes. Um, you know, recently we had... Um, our former attorney general filed a public records request when he was attorney general. Now he's governor. Um, but basically trying to get our public records or our, our communication between the EPA and environmental justice organizations like Rise St. James. And so we do know that the public, the national attention that we're getting is shaking, is shaking some folks up because they want to know what that communication has been like between us and the EPA. Um, and so we do think that there will be changes. We have had some disappointments lately um, where, you know, um, the EPA hasn't really stepped in like they should, like Antonio was uh, talking about earlier, um, you know, in terms of them saying, okay, enough is enough. We won't allow these petrochemical plants to be built in St. James or throughout Cancer Alley. And we haven't seen that yet. Um, we need them to step in and they haven't. Mm-hmm. So in terms of telling our story, we're, we're okay with telling it over and over again. With this particular report, um, I was able to talk about not just cancer, but I was able to talk about my miscarriage mm-hmm. and how the pollution may have contributed to, to my miscarriage. And so I think that we're tired, but we're not tired. Mm. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear about that. And thank you for sharing your story. You talk about struggling with infertility. You got pregnant in 2014 and then you had a miscarriage. When did you start thinking that your miscarriage could have resulted from being exposed to so many toxic chemicals? Yeah, so it wasn't until, um, I would say, um, I guess maybe when Antonia said that there was a connection mm-hmm. between reproductive health and the pollution 
like when I had the miscarriage, I thought it was because I picked up on a box of um, things from my office. Um, I never thought that there was a connection. Like I knew there was a connection between cancer and, and the pollution, but never miscarriages or even my inability to get pregnant. Um, I just never thought about it. I never thought that there was a connection. And now I know. Caitlin, you also had a miscarriage and your story actually got national headlines because this happened to you right after the abortion ban took place in Louisiana. Of course, after the Supreme Court overturned Roe and you made headlines because the doctors were actually afraid to treat you because they could possibly be investigated for dealing with a miscarriage. I mean, this is what a story. Yes. And sorry to cut you off, Rose. I do. um, I I definitely attest to what Shamel is saying around constantly telling the story and being, you know, motivated and empowered by so many women across South Louisiana that are experiencing the same thing in trying to get our legislators and our lawmakers to make differences, different decisions around the laws that they're passing. But I also have received a lot of um, feedback that gives a sentiment of frustration, myself included, because we tell these powerful stories that you think would resonate to the point where, you know, our lawmakers or the folks that advocate on our behalf would be running, right, to put pen, pen to paper to make sure that we have access and we are not experiencing some of the things that we are experiencing post Roe versus Wade being overturned. But unfortunately, I feel kind of like we're, you know, in some ways we're kind of screaming in the wind lately. And I'm just hopeful that Antonia's powerful um, story and report will do some of that work for us, especially going into such a very tough legislative session and having a governor that's extremely um, anti-women's rights and reproductive rights. Mm. Well, well, this is something we have not heard before, and we've done a lot of reporting on Roe. You told WWNO that when you were six weeks pregnant, you called a physician's group in Baton Rouge to make your first prenatal appointment for around the eight-week mark. But the woman on the line said that you were going to have to wait over a month. That's correct. Um, and I remember that like yesterday, um, she blatantly stated that the new rule was that you had to wait until the 12 week mark in order to be seen. Um, and that was going to be standard protocol for the for foreseeable future, especially because I think that timeline was right maybe four weeks after our um, abortion ban went into law for the state of Louisiana. I mean, this is amazing on so many levels. It's all connected. So you're being exposed to toxic chemicals. You want to make sure that you and your baby are healthy. But because the conservatives on the Supreme Court overturned Roe, you cannot find those answers when you should be able to find out if everything is going okay. Correct. You would think that, um, I guess, in a way, it would propel us to have wanted to to just give the absolute best care possible considering all the circumstances surrounding being pregnant in South Louisiana, not just, of course, as you mentioned, the abortion ban, but also just the predisposed um, predispos- predisposition to the amount of pollution that we have in the air and um, the fact that a lot of us do live closer proximity to petrochemical facilities. You would think that, you know, our physicians would be in a place to be able to provide better care because they know all of these things, but instead it just created another barrier. And Caitlin, you've had asthma for your entire life, which limits your daily activities. That's correct. And it's so wild to still say that out loud, but yes, my twin sister and I 
I've had asthma for 30 years. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more? We, we talked to Antonia about this earlier, just about what the area looks like, what it smells like, uh, just what daily life is like there uh, for people who are not familiar with what it's like to live near so many fossil fuel and petrochemical plants. Caitlin, do you want to take that first? Or Shamel, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was just going to say that in St. James, we have 12 petrochemical industries within a 10-mile radius. And so for us, um, and of course, Caitlin, um, you know, even driving by the plants, there's so many, you know, in in a, a small area where you can't escape the smells. So when I go to visit my mom who lives, very close to where for most of plastics is proposing to build a monstrous plastics plant. Um, and there are two more plants next to where for most of plastics wants to build. I smell the smell. I often, you know, get a sinus infection. Um, I don't have asthma, thank, thank God, but I suffer with chronic sinus infection. And, um, I can remember when I was in college getting you know, the whole house had rashes and we would go to the doctor and, you know, try to get some relief and nothing would work. And, you know, we ended up just using bleach to put over the rash um, and it got rid of the rash. But we at this point, we think that it was something in the water. And so we're dealing with not just the air being polluted, but we're also dealing with the water being polluted and our soil, like our plants don't yield not plants, but the trees don't yield the fruit that it used to yield. Um, a lot of our fig trees are dead. Um, oranges, um, our pecan trees, they may produce pecans every other year, whereas when I was growing up, they would produce every year. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's like a triple whammy when it comes to living in Cancer Alley. And then, you know, dealing with families who may have one or two people who have been diagnosed with cancer, um, one street, um, every other household um, has either somebody has been diagnosed with cancer or um, they have a family member who has passed away from cancer. Mm. Caitlin, what would you like to add? I would like to add that I think the the most disappointing thing about growing up and living in Louisiana and simultaneously the most beautiful thing is it's an absolute gorgeous state, right? Mm-hmm. So we are covered in various bodies of water. We've got beautiful greenery. We're known for our trees and our landscape and our um, extremely old um, agriculture. And it's when you, when you see it, you know, in pictures or in books, you, it's just an absolute sportsman's paradise as they call it. Um, But most recently, just with the influx amount of petrochemical plants that are being built a lot of times you're seeing like a landscape of just absolute gorgeous you know birds and exotic animals and in the background a petrochemical facility like that is pretty much how we are being photographed these days um and when you walk outside it smells like eggs or like sulfur or you know just depending on what a facility might uh, produce in your area could depend on what you smell but it's not um, the smells of magnolias anymore, which is very disappointing. And mm-hmm. oftentimes my family and I, we, we look around and we're like, you know, why are we still here? We love our state because our family's here. It's gorgeous. There's a lot to do. But for the most part, it's becoming very difficult when it comes to just simple, simple things like breathing, you know, being able to play sports, 
you know, having your kids and activities, all of those things are becoming even more difficult with just the amount of plants that are coming up left and right in our neighborhoods. And so just really want to paint that picture for folks that while we're still such a beautiful state, it's just constantly um, that 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 picture is just constantly shifting, right, in the way that we're photographed. Mm. Oh. Caitlin Joshua is the Louisiana Gulf Coast campaigner with Earthworks. Shamel Levine is an activist with Rise St. James. Antonia Yuhas is the lead author of Human Rights Watch's new report, We're Dying Here, The Fight for Life in a Louisiana Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. And I hope you can take the time to maybe at least read the summary of this report. It is extremely long and detailed, so important. Be sure to watch the video that accompanies the report. Shamel and Caitlin are featured in this video along with a number of other activists in the area. You can find it at yourcallradio.org. Antonia, it's really devastating to hear Shamel and Caitlin talk about what they're dealing with. I mean, to think that just to visualize Caitlin talking about how people are now in photographs with these facilities behind them. Um, first off, Antonia, I think it's really important to name some of these companies because we often say petrochemical, oil and gas, but what companies are we actually talking about? So can you first talk about that? And then this report says in order for governments to uphold their human rights obligations, they need to rapidly phase out fossil fuels. So if you can also talk about that in our remaining minutes. Um, let me, I'll, I'm going to let um, Shamel and Caitlin talk about the companies that are most of concern to them, because basically this report was trying to paint a picture of the industry as a whole, that the industry as a whole is, um, that, that governments are failing to hold the industry as a whole to account and that the industry as a whole needs to be phased out, that it's not a question of if this if this company or that company um, changed its ways, the problem would be solved. But rather, the necessity is to phase out um, the fossil fuels and petrochemicals to protect both the climate and local communities. I wanted to actually just jump in on one quick thing and then turn it back over to um, Shamel and Caitlin, which is that there are what are the rules? What are the laws that we can change? Because I know it's something that they both work on as well, and the. Biden administration just released a new rule reducing um, PM 2.5 pollution, which is a significant um, pollutant that is emitted from fossil fuel and petrochemical operations. And that new rule uh, doesn't go as far as many of us would have wanted, but reduces the amount that's permitted that is allowed to be released. And that is a significant change. And the administration also put forward a new rule that makes it impossible for um, industry to do those uh, just free form, quote unquote, emergency releases where they can release as much pollution as they want um, during emergency situations. And that I think those are two significant changes. And I'm actually eager to hear um, what Shamel and Caitlin think those changes will have, um, could have on the ground and what else would be needed. Shamel, do you want to jump in first? Yeah, so also, um, in addition to the particulate matter 2.5, uh, rule would be something, something that we've been working on with our attorneys would be, um, the significant impact levels guidance that EPA issues and what the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality use to determine whether or not they're going to grant air permits to proposed industries. What we found is that the industries 
not the industries, but Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality has been abusing um, the significant impact level guidance. Um, and so we're pushing the EPA to strengthen their significant impact levels or the seals guidance to ensure that um, Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality will take into consideration cumulative impact. And so right now they're not using it correctly. And so we want them to use it correctly. And we want the EPA to enforce LDQ to use it correctly. So that's one of the things that they need to change um, and could really impact new industries from being granted air permits throughout Cancer Alley. Shamil, why do you think something like this takes so long, given all of the work that you all do for, um, I mean, your your mother's been at this fight for so long, and now you're, you're also fighting along with so many other community members? I would have to say money and the lobbyists, the mm-hmm. industry, big industries lobbyists. You know, they lobby. Um, when we were trying to get air monitors um, at the state level, fence line air monitors where the, we could monitor those plants in real time, and um, we got pushback. We got pushback. It passed the um, environmental committee. It got out of that committee, but then when it got to finance, it was basically – well, you know, this is going to be a burden on smaller industries that don't make as much money. And we're talking about billion-dollar industries that are basically making their money off of people of color, basically. And um, we're being exposed at high levels. And, you know, for our state legislature to say, well, we don't want to overburden the chemical industry. And so, you know, they employ so many um or I would say deploy so many lobbyists to meet with legislators um, and congressmen. And so I think it's, it's a lot about money and making sure that all of the oil and gas industry continues. Caitlin, what would you like to add in our remaining minutes, your thoughts on what it will take to create change and what can people outside of Louisiana do to support you all? Um, definitely. And I appreciate Shamel mentioning that, um, that we're literally just trying to get basic level air monitoring here in the state of Louisiana. That's where we are, um, in this moment. And what I think would take to motivate or move our legislators, quite honestly, if it, if I can be transparent, long game, we've got to get more environmentally progressive folks in those offices. As we know, a lot of our, our, you know, current legislators are bought and paid for already. And it's very difficult to move the needle when you're coming from that starting place. And so long game, we've definitely got to get more folks like myself or Shamel, not saying we're running, but folks that think like us, um, that are interested in putting people over profits. Um, and then secondly, for folks that want to support outside of the state of Louisiana, if you see a petition, if you see any type of effort that we might be pushing out um, to our communities, please do. And I know it sounds like a simple and not relative ask, but it really is. The, the petition signatures, the amount of pressure that we're able to put on our lawmakers on the, from the local level to the state to the federal, those really do make a lot of impact and really gets a, enough attention for us to be able to at least sit down and have conversations about potential legislation that can change our lives. And so if you see that come across your social um, or in your email, please don't ignore it. Please push it out. Um, and just constantly know, like Shamel mentioned, we're always fighting something. Um, and just to kind of name just a few of the plants that we do have in our backyards that's com- com- committing all these environmental racist crimes, um, that would be Exxon, Dow, BASF, 
um, New Core Steel, New Store, um, MST, Mosaic, CF Industries. The list is very long, and so we're fighting a lot. So we're always going to have some type of um, engagement um, being pushed out into the community to help support some of the efforts that we're trying to to get um, launched, whether in St. James or Cancer Alley as a whole. Rose, just to say how well this actually does work. Antonio, we have about 20 seconds. It works because the LNG ban that the president just enacted was a result of Louisiana organizing. It was frontline Louisiana organizers who pushed, and the president then essentially put a moratorium on any new um, liquefied natural gas export facilities because of organizing from Louisiana. So the, we, when we follow these folks, we can all win. Antonia Juhas is senior researcher on fossil fuels at Human Rights Watch. You can find their new report, We're Dying Here, at yourcallradio.org. Shamel Levine is an activist with Rise St. James, and Caitlin Joshua is the Louisiana Gulf Coast campaigner with Earthworks. Thank you all so much for your important work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rose.